Good evening, Raleigh. It is Tuesday, February 26th, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. I'm DeAndre Jones. And I'm Jake Langwan. We thank you for tuning in. Tonight, coverage of the Transforming Economic Seminar and exploration of the role NC State plays in innovation that was hosted recently on in the and the James Hunt Library on Centennial Campus. In addition, DeAndre explores the controversy at UNC recently over the handling of alleged sexual assault crimes on campus. Gene is also back with Weird Science and maybe even a movie, if we have time. But first, Jasmine Shepard has the weather for us. Jasmine? Good afternoon, Wolfpack. I hope you all enjoyed the lovely weather we experienced today. If not, better days are in the forecast. In the meantime, prepare for a few more showers to occur throughout the night with a low of 43 degrees expected. Tomorrow, we'll be experiencing some lovely weather. Sunny skies are expected along with a high of 61 degrees and a low of 38, giving us something to look forward to. But be prepared for a slight chance of rain right around 10% towards the afternoon. Thursday, get ready for some wind and a 10% chance of rain again. 54 degrees is the expected high along with the low of 34. Friday, March 1st, we will begin our spring break with 0% chance of rain and some sunny skies. 51 will be the high and 36 will be the low. Saturday, 49 degrees will be the high and the low is expected to be 20, 30, I'm sorry, 33. A 0% chance of rain is in the forecast for that day as well. Sunday, 47 will be the high and the low is expected to drop to 29 degrees. So definitely be prepared for that along with the 10% chance of rain. And that's all for the Weather Wolf Pack and I hope you enjoy your up and coming spring break because I know I will. And now it's your Andrew for the latest in the news, Andrew. Thanks, DeAndre. In a 58-41 to 41 vote, the Senate confirmed former Nebraska Senator Chuck Hagel as the next Secretary of Defense. Hagel had faced Republican criticism after his nomination, both in response to past comments he had made, as well as continued disagreement with the President's administration over the handling of the Benghazi attack. Nineteen tourists died in southern Egypt today after their hot air balloon exploded and fell almost a thousand feet. A fire had broken out and the, and the pilots tried to land the craft, causing it to shoot upward. Two survivors of the crash have both been hospitalized. And on Thursday, Pope Benedict XVI will become the first resigned pontiff in 600 years. He will now be known as the Pope Emeritus and will still reside in the Vatican. The papal conclave to select his successor is said to be planning on convening soon, but no date has been announced. And that's the news. Thanks for that, Andrew. This week, in the honor of NC State's anniversary, the university hosted different speakers and scholars on spurring innovation in the workplace here in the Triangle area and the role that NC State plays in spurring growth. Jake has more. In honor of North Carolina State University's 125th anniversary, this week the university hosted a myriad of speakers and seminars covering the different roles that North Carolina State plays here in the Triangle area, especially with regards to the sciences and the technology industry. Business leaders from across different industries came to speak in an event that began with a private address by the governor of North Carolina, Pat McCrory. They spoke of the different ways the university can help to foster growth and the ways that innovation can be spurred here on campus. Leaders from some of the biggest biotech companies in the Triangle came to speak at the seminar hosted at the new James B. Hunt Jr. Library on Centennial Campus. Included among the speakers was an address by Tom Daughtry, the executive R&D director for Procter & Gamble. First, uh, industry's need is rooted in the challenge to drive growth. So as an example, Procter & Gamble is in the business improving the lives of the world's consumers through products and services that are used every day by almost everybody. We offer 300 of those products to about 4 million consumers around the world in more than 180 countries. Last year, our net outside sales were nearly $84 billion. The key for us to drive growth is innovation. And here is a picture of some of our products. I hope you're very familiar with them and use them every day, all day. 
many of our products use large quantities of non-wovens. Examples include personal hygiene products like pampers, diapers, and wipes, always feminine pads, hard surface cleaning wipes like Swiffer, fabric care products like bounce softener, and even Duracell batteries. In fact, P&G is one of the largest customers of and has a lot of impact on the non-wovens industry. And the non-wovens industry is large with total global sales of about $26 billion per year, supporting products with sales of well over $100 billion per year in a broad range of product categories. And the competition in these markets is fierce uh, with both branded and private label competitors. Again, we know that in order to grow our businesses, we must innovate. So an essential question is how to foster innovation. Our strategy at P&G is to connect business needs with development opportunities inside or outside the company through an open innovation model. The keys are to network externally and recognize that the best ideas can come from anywhere. But to deliver results with this model, a key opportunity is to build relationships with leading academic research institutes and centers. In the field of non-wovens, the Non-Wovens Institute at NC State is an extremely important relationship for our company. They are the global academic leader for non-woven research, so they provide a great source of ideas. And they have the largest academic industry cooperative research center with more than 65 member companies networking with academic leaders and students, another essential ingredient in the open innovation process. And for P&G specifically, we also make use of its excellent non-woven pilot plant facilities as well as the outstanding capability of its staff in computational modeling and non-woven textile analytical. I would comment that these capabilities have evolved with the Institute's innovation model to offer some very unique benefits to industry. They combine the fundamental interdisciplinary research, laboratory services, and even new product development in non-wovens to be the global uh, leader and to truly enable economic growth. And this opportunity is illustrated by the uh, industrial outreach program, where a wide range of market segments are served by platform technologies. The talents of professors and student researchers participating in an open innovation network to produce economic benefit. And with the Non-Wovens Institute drawing the most industry support of any in the state of North Carolina, the overall impact of the Non-Wovens Institute under the leadership of Drs. Portahini and Lomax includes economic development as more than 200 companies, large like P&G, medium and small, and startup drive benefit to their businesses. They are also training future leaders with 95% of their 120 PhD alumni in leading industrial positions. Technology transfer of patented technologies and technology incubation with the first product commercialized in July 2012 from four converting lines and creating 70 new jobs. In short, the Non-Wovens Institute has led knowledge creation and change in the industry. And as noted in this quote about change, by PNG Group President Deb Benretta. Enterprises that lead change will thrive and win. 
the Non-Wellness Institute here at NC State is indeed thriving. And as we look forward, our collective challenge uh, is to ensure that this capability is sustained. Thanks very much for your attention. In addition, Alan Burchett, an executive at ABB, spoke of the importance of private companies partnering with public universities notably NC State, to ensure that students who come out of college have the skills and the tools that they need to jump right into the workforce. Um, so as I said, ABB was the, the first tenant on NC State. Today, um, our power products division and our power systems division are located around the corner. That represents almost 40% of our North American revenues. So Centennial Campus is key for us. Uh, also, we spend about a billion and a half globally in research and development. We do that based on eight, seven different regions around the world. One of those research centers is on campus right here in the same building. So we do a lot of research and development. Now the things that we do, I mentioned more power automation companies. So you're gonna see our products, uh, we're the world's largest electric motor manufacturer. Uh, so the motors are driving the air conditions or the heating zone machine, they're, they're, they're moving the conveyors in the factories. Uh, the way you make a motor more efficient is an electric drive with the world's largest manufacturer drives. Uh, and why it's important is because about 25% of the world's electricity that's produced is consumed by electric motors. So that's fairly significant when you think about the impact that some of our products have. In fact, when, from the time a fuel is, is mined or harvested um, to where you consume it, about 80% is lost. And we can save about 30% of that from an energy efficiency standpoint. It was mentioned earlier today by the Chancellor that this site is number, this area is number two in the country as far as smart grid related companies. Well, smart grid, first of all, let's talk about that. That's anything that makes the grid more efficient, reliable, interdependent for, for, for fuel. Um, so it's everything from advanced metering infrastructure to high voltage DC transmission. How do you move a million volts across the country of China, for instance, which is one that we just did. Um, so it's around the grid, and the grid is how you transmit, distribute, distribute and consume electricity. When we looked at that same study that was referenced earlier, we saw something a little different. We saw the number of companies in Silicon Valley is huge, but the number of companies that have mass, that have employees, that have revenues, that have products in the market. Products are important for us. Uh, 50% of the little pad-mounted transformers, which is that green box in your neighbor's yard, I hope, uh, we make those. Uh, so we like products, and so when we looked at the smart grid, we found that there was about 70 companies in this area that have mass and uh, in our backyard. And so we started asking around economic development, uh, what are we going to promote this? Because we need a, a supply of talent. Uh, we also very quickly realized that our competitors were stealing our people, and we were stealing their people. And so that's a limited lifespan on that, on that ecosystem. So, we stood up the Research Triangle Clean Tech Cluster with the founding board there, along with our competitors. Um, and as this group started meeting, uh, we quickly brought in the universities. Terry's now on the board. Uh, so, so now we have the, the government piece, private industry piece, and the university piece on this, this board uh, to promote this region for economic development around clean tech and that whole topic. So that's been uh, pretty amazing to see that come together. We've got our second board meeting down, uh, and it's even another way that we're working with the university uh, to now adopt to uh, promote economic development. The other ways that we work with NC State clearly is with the Freedom Center. I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but MIT did a study. They looked at the top 10 technologies that will make a difference in the next dec decade. The, the cell phone is on there. That's how important that is. Also, the solid grade transformer that the Freedom Center is developing right down the street. 
that's fairly important to have that technology. That's important for a company like HP because MIT just released a study at lunchtime today that named it as one of the top global uh, companies around innovation. So it's a natural marriage between A to B Freedom Center. Uh, we also working with various groups on the campus around uh, electric motors, around software. A lot of what we do is about 50, is, is, in the future for us, about 50% of what we do is going to be not so much products, but also software. Um, and we have some ideas around future collaboration. Uh, one is around data centers. The other, when we look at Centennial Campus, and there's a lot of folks at NC State Engineering that are thinking about this, you may hear the term microgrids. Uh, things like microgrids, you're able to island and disconnect from the power grid. Uh, that will be important if you have a superstorm Sandy, as an example. And so Centennial Campus is a, a candidate for microgrids. So, so as our 25-plus year relationship with NC State has gone, and now we're seeing either, even more exciting areas to do future collaboration around data centers, microgrids, software, the future of electric motors. So it's a pretty exciting place for us to be. Uh, the relationship has been very rewarding for both, and of course, we hire a lot of NC State engineering grants. So. Overall, there were over a dozen speakers over a series of panels that discussed and debated the future of NC State and its partnership with different biotech companies in the area. One thing everybody seemed to agree on, however, is that those partnerships will be around for a long time. Brian the Triangle, I'm Jake Langlois, 88.1 WKNC. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We've got more on the way. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to remind you that before the story commences, that Eye on the Triangle is a non-biased news radio show. That being said, I feel as if this story is something that students of our school and schools everywhere should be having discussions about. I hope this story causes listeners to think about ways to improve the way that certain problems are handled. Recently, there's been a lot of buzz going around the internet about UNC Chapel Hill and how they handle, or in some cases don't handle, their rape and sexual assault cases coming from students. The Daily Tar Heel, UNC school newspaper, has released plenty of informing articles about this subject as well. If any of you want to research this topic more, it's safe to say that victims of sexual assault on UNC's campus have serious complaints about their school's handling of sexual misconduct. One that survivors say is inappropriate, time-consuming, and traumatic ripe with insensitivity for the victim's trauma and victim-blaming in of itself. Last month, former University of North Carolina Assistant Dean of Students Melinda Manning, three students, and one former student filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights on behalf of themselves and 64 other unnamed sexual assault survivors, alleging that university officials pressured Manning into underreporting cases and violated the Campus Sexual Assault Victims' Bill of Rights, FERPA, and other opportunity mandates under Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, Title VI and VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Melinda Manning later released this statement, quote, My original plan was just to walk away and forget about everything that's happened, Manning said in an email, but I love Carolina too much to do that. I can't assume that someone else will fix these problems without my input, unquote. School of Public Health member Trudy Bennett had this to say on a weekly news show put on by Carolina students called Carolina Week. 
Assistant Dean of Students, Melinda Manning, alleging in this official complaint that the university was pressuring her to underreport the number of sexual assault cases. If that were to be the case, how would that make you feel? If there is any pressure in any way to make the university look better, if that's in conflict with supporting and promoting the best interests in every way possible of the students, then that would be very disturbing. I was raped numerous times by my boyfriend, and the university is aware of that, um, but he's still back on campus. Recently, the issue has been coming to a head as more and more students are surfacing to address this issue in particular. There is a student named Landon Gambill, the second female voice that you just heard who claims that within her honor court trial, she felt more like the accused than the accuser. Landon says, quote, they were not only offensive and inappropriate, but they were so victim-blaming. They made it seem like my assault was completely my fault. The woman student said to me, Landon, as a woman, I know that if that had happened to me, I would have broken up with him the first time it happened. Will you explain to me why you didn't? Unquote. The woman student is, of course, referring to Gamble's boyfriend, the person that was abusing her at the time. Gamble said that the court used her history of clinical depression and her suicide attempt, which she said was a result of her abusive relationship against her. Quote, they implied that I was emotionally unstable and couldn't be telling the truth because I had attempted suicide, unquote. Gamble's situation only got worse. Last Friday, she received an email from Elizabeth Ireland, the graduate and professional school student attorney general, saying that she was being charged with disruptive or intimidating behavior that woefully abuses, disparages, or otherwise interferes with another, so as to adversely affect their academic pursuits, opportunities for university employment, extracurricular activities, or opportunities to benefit from other aspects of university life. All of this, of course, stemming from the fact that Landon is speaking out against the rape on campus and her rapist, keeping in mind that she never once and still has not identified him by name. If UNC's honor court finds that Landon has indeed intimidated her rapists and adversely affected his life, she could be subjected to the following sanctions. Expulsion, permanent suspension, definite or indefinite suspension, definite or indefinite probation, and the list goes on. Landon said that she attended a preliminary honor court meeting and asked whether she could have violated the honor code simply by saying that she was raped, and the answer was indeed yes. I urge you students to question if this is fair. Should the university so vigorously protect an alleged rapist? Many say, yes, if the man is not found guilty, then he should not be slandered. But once again, is the ruling of UNC's honor court fair? And better yet, is Landon even intimidating her rapist at all? Landon is not the only student on campus who thinks that the answer to these questions are no. Students gathered in front of South Building today to protest UNC's sexual assault policies after filing an official complaint with the university, de the U.S. Department of Education, along with four others. Junior Andrea Pino and other students shared their personal stories and called for reform. Their list of demands includes administrative reviews of Vice Chancellor Winston Crisp, Dean of Students Jonathan Sauls, and Vice Chancellor and General Counsel Leslie Strong. Landon Gamble, now a sophomore, told her personal story and blamed the university for how it was handled.
Here is the story of another power player in these allegations. Andrea Pino is a junior political science and English major at UNC. Based on her transcript, she looks like she's had the standard college career, but she hasn't. Pino says she was raped last year at an off-campus party. I never thought it would happen to me. So even though I knew all the signs and knew what it looked like, I never thought I would let that happen to myself. Pino says she never reported her case. She believes she suffered a concussion and says she doesn't remember many details from the incident. She didn't report the incident to UNC officials either. She doesn't think it would have done any good. Now, she and four others are accusing the university of intimidating victims who report sexual assault. Saspi North is the site of the Office of Dean of Students, Jonathan Sauls. Andrea Pino told me Sauls is one of the administrators responsible for the faulty sexual assault policy. Sauls declined for an interview, but did release this statement. We do take the issue of sexual assault seriously and have worked hard to respond to allegations of sexual misconduct with a process that is fair, effective, and provides appropriate support and due process to both the accuser and the accused. Pino disagrees. She says students at UNC who report sexual assaults are not treated fairly by the administration. When reporting, they're heavily questioned and they're victim blamed and told, why didn't they leave before? Why were they drinking? You know, why did they know what was going on? Why didn't they say no? And like, you know, there's always that heavy blame on survivors um, when reporting. The group recently filed an official complaint about UNC's policies to the U.S. Department of Education. One member of the group is former assistant dean of students, Melinda Manning. Of course, there are two sides to every story. Did these women really go to court with insubstantial evidence by not going straight to the police and getting a rape kit done to provide more evidence of the actual circumstance? Some students argue that due process cannot help certain victims. The comments of many on the Daily Star Hills articles provide insight into some students' minds. One student says, quote, police actually have legal authority to collect evidence and bolster a criminal case, which the honor system can use. If you don't have the evidence, the case becomes a witch hunt of sorts, unquote. Another student says, quote, the university is not a court of law and they shouldn't have to act as one. If these women were serious about wanting justice for the wrongs that were allegedly committed against them, they would have approached the authorities, the ones who were able to take legal action against the alleged perpetrators, unquote. All of these being good points. So you tell us, we'll pack. Where do you stand with this issue? Do a little research and please don't be afraid to share your opinions or findings with us on our Facebook or Twitter account. Without a doubt, with this much controversy, something needs to be changed for sure. For me, it's just a matter of what that something is. A big thank you to the Daily Tar Heel and to Carolina Week for giving me a lot of information to write this story. Thank you all and for I in the Triangle. This has been DeAndre Jones. Alright guys, so for a little bit of a discussion, um, Landon Gamble, the woman that I that I mentioned in my story, is a student at UNC who has sort of um, sort of brought this whole thing to a head. Uh, she's in a lot of the a lot of the articles that you can find on the on the Daily Tar or in the Daily Tar Heel, and you know in a lot of the articles that you can find on this topic in general. Um, 
And sort of the main the main focus of the latest bit of, our, of these articles is that she is now being uh, charged with an honor violation because uh, she is quote unquote inseminating uh, the person who is her alleged rapist. Um, so I guess I guess I just want to sort of get your guys' standpoint and see and sort of ask: Do you think that the university has a point, and is she inseminating quote unquote and like impeding his lifestyle on the campus, even though he hasn't really named it? Um, is she being an, is she an activist for this now? Um, there's there's a lot of efforts. There's a lot of uh, I saw when I was scanning through uh, Facebook and all that. I saw a lot of different Facebook pages of you know um, I stand by Landon uh, and stuff like that. So um, I guess it's fair to say yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what what kind of efforts have there been made? Um, is it just limited to the UNC campus? Is this limited to um, the UNC system? Um, I what kind of effort has there been? I don't really do too much of a, of research as to how, what she's doing now to like sort of prevent this, but I know that her um, and uh, she's inspired a lot of people to make formal complaints mm-hmm. about the way that UNC has been handling these things. But the, I mean, I guess the real the biggest issue now that people are really outraged is the fact that the UNC is uh, UNC UNC is threatening to charge or not threatening to is charging her with these allegations that she is intimidating uh, her alleged rapist. Yeah, so that's my biggest concern about how you you can get in trouble for doing something like that. So is she getting in trouble because she's coming out publicly and saying, you know, I got raped? Or is she getting in trouble because is she facing consequences because she's saying this is who the alleged raper is? She she hasn't said publicly, or so she says she hasn't said publicly who her former boyfriend is, who she claims raped her. But, I mean, obviously people at the school, people who know her, know him and people know him know her right so uh, that's why they're saying this is because um they found him innocent when she went to the honor board about it and so now they're saying well this guy we've found we found this guy not guilty and now you're still saying that he's a rapist and that counts as intimidation right and in my story um i said that when she went to this preliminary hearing about this charge that she's getting um they she asked them um is her just saying that she was raped is that uh, a violation of the honor code? And they said yes, and I think it's exactly why uh, what Andrew said is because if he was found innocent, in a way, her saying that she was raped would be a way of you know I guess slander in terms of the university. But See, I, that 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 breeds a culture of fear then, because if you fear that your attacker will be found innocent, that's even less of an incentive for people to come forward. Exactly, which is um, which is definitely destructive. Um, but I definitely can see, I mean, I guess I can see from the university's point of view why they did it. Um, because if he was found innocent, then, I mean, then she is still saying that he is not innocent. But I think that a lot of people are having problems with the due process of this anyway, because um, I guess I'll just move into another point from here, is that the way that these trials are being conducted um, are or the, the people that are being that have been to these trials are claiming that they that they're very very insensitive, very intrusive, and very victim blaming. As in, asking them questions such as you know why were you drinking? Why didn't you just say no? Why were you at the party in the first place? Things like that. Uh, so I think that's where a lot of people. I think that's like where like people are having the origins right now, um, or where the origins of their angers are coming from. Is that even if he was found innocent, um, that the due process of the honor court isn't exactly where it should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, at what point do do local law enforcement, does local law enforcement get involved? I well, mean, what? 
And once again, an, another big question is that um, when I was scanning uh, the articles, and especially I found that a lot of the comments on the articles were really interesting uh, from students at the university. And, um, you know, you would expect the, the, the majority of people would, would be would automatically just fall themselves in support. Um, but a lot of people were, were really, really logical about it and uh, sort of asked the same question and, you know, ask, you know, why do people wait so long? Which, of course, could tie back to what you said about the about fear of coming out, and um, what role does law enforcement have, and where is the line drawn between law enforcement and the honor court at US at UNC, um, and if you are aware that you were raped, you know why didn't you go to the cops in the first place? But that is another that's another question that could be considered a victim blaming question, you know. But it's, I, in my opinion, it's a, it's a logical question, especially for um, the story of the girl, uh, Andrea, who was the second story in my, in my, in my story that I just aired, uh, that she thought that she had a concussion and, you know, she was injured, mm-hmm. woke up injured the next morning, but still didn't go to the police. Um, and she, it's, it mentioned why she didn't go to UNC's, uh, UNC's campus or UNC's student, student conduct board. But questions like that come to my mind as to why she didn't go to the authorities because it was she was at an off, an off campus party. Well, I mean, there's a there's a huge stigma attached to something like that, and there's a lot of shame that people have to a lot of shame that comes with being a victim of things like that, and it's unfortunate. But that's the reality: is a lot of people, a lot of times after something like that happens, people do feel shame and they they're scared to come out to the authorities, and um, that's just an unfortunate reality. Um, but. I guess my question to you all is, do you think that UNC's honor court is conducting these trials in an unfair manner? I think if you're going to charge someone with, if you're going to slap charges on someone after they, their accuser has been found innocent, I think that is wrong or that is counterproductive because I think it sets a precedent that if you, you know, if you try and seek justice and it doesn't pan out, then you, you know, consequences will be brought against, charges will be brought against you, and I don't think that's a very productive thing at all. Well, I mean, that's not, that's not really their point. Their point is if someone didn't do something, which is what they're saying about her boyfriend, that but think he, about, he, he did not rape her, he is not a rapist. But think about, think about it, the next person that, brings, that wants to report something, and they, they, this incident comes to mind where the, the alleged attacker was was cleared of charges what if this person is because it, it, it's hard I mean, to prove something like that you, if you know but you, you have to understand from their perspective they made the right decision the first time and now she is falsely accusing this person of rape despite them uh trying to put in into it the first time so i mean that's their that's position that's right. that sounds horrible especially if he really did rape her but if he didn't and that's their position then, I mean, it, it makes sense what they're doing. Right, and now it would be fair to say that that's the position that they're taking right now. So you're and, saying because she kept up with the activism. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's not it's not even the issue of whether she was raped or not, because that's what the very first hearing was over. The issue is now they're saying, I mean, they're I guess they are saying that she wasn't, and they're saying that she can't accuse this guy of rape anymore, even if it's public even if she hasn't used his name, then it's still, uh, I mean, what, what was their word? It, it's intimidating to him. Yeah. Um, it's intimidating to him, uh, to him. Harassment. As, yeah. Uh, harassing. And, uh, um, basically that it's impeding his lifestyle on campus that he isn't having 
or his, 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 he isn't having a very free life. I mean, I can totally understand. I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, but that I, mean, I guess that would be considered like defamation. But in a situation like this, when like Jake just pointed out, what happens to girls? God forbid, if something like this happens again, what then happens? They probably would not be so apt to go to you know report the situation because of what's of the case right now because he was found innocent and then she's facing consequences for still speaking out about it. I mean, if you were in her case, I, I mean, if you were in her case, what would you, you would, you would still, if you were raped, you would continue to talk about it. I mean, right. it's not, want. it's not morally wrong to do that if you were, but I don't know. I mean, I wasn't, you would there. want justice. And I think a you lot right, of this, right. I think a lot of this is still, um, the Duke lacrosse case is still fresh in the minds of people around here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably about seven years ago now. Right. But I still think a lot of people that comes to mind when it comes up with when an issue like this comes up, especially in a university setting. Um, but I, I don't think I think I think it's counterproductive. Right. Especially with the, the allegations that they're facing from across the university about them in general, not handling these cases in general, because I mean, in the, I mean, the formal complaint that was filed by the, the former associate dean with three other students and and. Um, advocating for 64 other unnamed students that have brought forth sexual assault cases and been underplayed or undervalued or, you know, kept under wraps. Um, It's just, I think that the main problem right now is with how these cases are being handled in the first place. And I mean, and if they're handled incorrectly, then everything else proceeding, I mean, is, is under a false precedent. And so... I think that that's, you know, that's where Mm -hmm. they have to start and they have to attack it at the source, which is how they handle and these cases. And I think that they should make they should be making it more clear what a woman should do if she was, God forbid, raped or if she was sexual assaulted. You know, what what steps should she take? Because I don't I don't believe that those steps are clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, any any final thoughts? I, I absolutely agree with you, Andre with what he said that that seems to be the ultimate source of the issue here that the university is clearly doing something wrong because they have 60 some complaints and that for justice to be done for these women something needs to change i think i think this is more of a system-wide problem than a i don't i don't think this is limited to just unc chapel hill right right i would think i think you would if you did some if you really looked at it i think you would find this is a a fairly common problem across universities across the state maybe even across the nation i don't know but i think um it definitely needs to be re-examined right so interesting discussion guys a little bit heavy um so to move on let's see jean zernov she's back with her latest installment of weird science guys i'm back again for this week's weird science special okay so at the forefront of information processing and biological processing is a new field it's called synthetic biology 
It's becoming increasingly clear that information processing plays a crucial role in enabling the functionality of biological systems on the cellular as well as the molecular levels. When the system is viewed through the lens of semiconductor information processing, biological discovery, and the development of medical technology commence. Synthetic biology focuses predominantly on the design and construction of biological systems and devices, which can be applied to the real world in terms of medical technology, such as MRIs and PETs. They can be applied agriculturally towards energy systems, as well as towards the development of new materials. Incorporating biological systems in the development of semiconductor technology helps provide an alternative approach. And this is often useful because physics places extensive limitations on the technology which we can develop, especially in terms of size. We can't always scale as small as we need to scale. And combining biological technology with semiconductor technology helps us overcome some of these physical limits. An example of this would be the fact that DNA achieves phenomenal storage densities, which simply can't be replicated by known semiconductor technologies due to the physical limitations on the size of the semiconductor chip or whatever you're trying to develop. You simply can't scale that small to such a microscopic level. And I covered this technology in depth a few weeks ago. Essentially, one gram of DNA can store over two petabytes of data. And this can't be rivaled by modern-day storage devices. This storage density is only achievable through the synthesis of principles. And it can't be replicated by semiconductor technology alone, at least in this point in time. Interestingly enough, the man who specializes his research in digital storage of information in DNA is George Church. And this is the same man who's leading the research in Obama's newly announced Human Brain Project. Church realized the importance in this day and age of creating a map of the human brain. And this should show the activation of brain activity in a much more precise scale than modern measurements we have today. The goal of the project is to map brain activity, which is declared to be one of the most viable scientific challenges of the 21st century. Currently, we can monitor brain activity through PET or MRI imaging, which detects activation of broad regions through standards such as oxygen use. And this pretty much shows how much glucose is consumed, indicating brain activity in a given region. But this method lacks precision as it focuses on one large region of the brain, while brain activity is a lot more concentrated than that. And sometimes we focus on small groups of neurons, and the result is comparable to only looking at a few pixels of an image up close, as opposed to the bigger picture. And by doing this, we do, in fact, lose sight of the bigger picture. And this is where the brain activity map comes in, because the true projection of critical brain activity lies somewhere between the two extremes of focusing on broad regions or just on small amounts of neurons. This involves somewhere between a few thousand to millions of neurons, and we lack the technology to map such large ensembles of neurons safely on humans. This is the goal of the proposal. We need to develop the technology which enables us to map and track these enormous amounts of cells in animals, and this technology needs to be transferable safely to 
the human brain. And another parameter of this is the fact that hospitals, universities, and other institutions need to be able to institute this technology. It needs to be somewhat readily available and replicable. Another practical application of synthetic biology is the study of cytomorphic systems, or in other words, anything that relates to the study of cell structure or function. This exemplifies the benefits of combining synthetic biology and semiconductor research. This field is relatively new, a few years at most, and shows that rigorous mathematical similarities between transistor operation and biochemical reaction operation allow for strong similarities in circuit design in cells and circuit design in semiconductors. Pretty much what this is saying is that we are able to quantify the difference or the similarity between circuits in electronics and circuits in cells. We're able to know that they are similar and manipulate the similarity. If the individual living cell is to be considered as an information processor, then it performs its task with extreme energy efficiency at very high rates. Estimates suggest that substantial energy use reductions may be feasible if we combine biological and electronic systems, which is possible due to the deep similarities between circuit design and electronics and circuit design in cells. Practically, these circuits could be used to create ultra-fast supercomputers that predict complex cell response to drugs and possibly facilitate the design of synthetic gene circuits in cells. Scientists are trying to find if the functionality of cellular sensors can be used to inspire equivalent inorganic sensors. The example presented is that of biological cellular quote-unquote noses, and these are supposed to sense molecules and pathogens in the same way that a cell detects the stimulus. So the question presented is, can the biological premise of stimulus detection, which all cells use, be transferable to inorganic compounds or electronics that we create? That's what researchers are trying to determine at the moment. From what you heard, you can probably deduce that lots of new and amazing developments are being made in research. But you can also deduce that we are headed in the direction of biology and that it is becoming more and more relevant. And I really hope that I gave you something to think about this week. And tune in later for some more weird science. This has been Jean Jarnoff for WKNC 88.1 FM, Raleigh. Thanks for that, Jean. Um, now, DeAndre went to eat at a local restaurant recently, and he made a review about it for this week's latest uh, restaurant of the week. This week, I have another awesome eating establishment that every sushi lover should check out. Conveniently located on Gledwin Avenue, Sushi Blues is easily accessible by car or city bus. After going to this restaurant for my first night of sushi, I was absolutely astonished by the comfortable vibe I got there. There were two seating areas, the main dining area and the bar area. My party sat in the bar area for a more intimate setting, which I greatly enjoyed. However, larger parties will definitely enjoy the modern decoration of the inside and outside dining areas. The vibe of this place is definitely early 90s jazz and rap pack with a modern twist and a good bit of their specialty roles are even named after early jazz figures such as Johnny Coltrane. The service is great and friendly and the food is quality and I was very satisfied with the buy one roll, get one roll policy that they employ. A great way to save money on a really classy dish. 
Their specialty rolls are very creative and very customizable, which I enjoyed quite a bit. For a fresh, quality sushi roll, I would definitely recommend Sushi Blues as your first local choice. Thank you guys, and this has been my restaurant pick of the week. Alright, y'all, so we're going to do a little bit of holidays of the week now. Um, so today is Tell a Fairy Tale Day. Um, and this is. Once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, not now. <laughs> so if you have kids, tell them to your kids. If you don't, maybe read them up, get a little bit, of, get in touch with your kids. You're so. never too old for a fairy tale. Never too old. Or just for watch a fairy Shrek. Tale. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like an aggregation right. of fairy tales. Oh, yeah. Um, so February 27th, Polar Bear Day. Um, and this one, this one, um, I couldn't find like the origin or creator of it, but I thought it was important because you know they're going extinct and global warming and be you know, mm. you know. So save them. Um, by the way, a polar, polar bear can grow up to nine feet tall when standing, and be up to fourteen hundred pounds. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so they're terrifying. Well, they're really, they're really cute as uh, oh yeah. as cubs. Crazy cute, but, adorable, but deadly. Mm. So, um. August or this next one is February twenty eighth. It's National Tooth Fairy Day. Okay, so. I mean, I think we're all here a little bit old for that. But. Right. Yeah. You well, know. <laughs> <laughs> when I asked, when I had my wisdom teeth taken out, I asked for my teeth, and like they wouldn't give them to me. So Why? I was kind of I don't know. They threw them out. They're, like, they're you know, your they put, teeth. They put them in the biohazard box and stuff because they're covered in blood when they you know pull them out of your skull. So I mean, Andrew, yeah. are you saying that just to say? No, that, I'm I mean, serious. Because you were going to then take the teeth and then place them under your pillow. I asked. I just wanted what, them. What were you going to do? Because they have the roots and stuff. You don't get those for any of the other teeth that fall out. You don't get those just anywhere. Andrew. I thought. I thought it was cool. I wanted my teeth. <laughs> You, you know what? You should have a right. I mean, yeah, you should have a right. To I, I, I have the right to my teeth. Yes. <laughs> so the first Friday in March, which is the uh, which is March first, is Employee Appreciation Day. Mm. So I mean, you know, appreciate the employees that you. you I mean, I don't probably, think any of us here are employers, not yet anyway. But employees right. slash employees. I mean, but you know, even if you're not an employer, I think you know if you see a, you know a, a house cleaner or like a, a housing staff member just be like hey you know i appreciate you yeah that's, that's a good I, I appreciate you i appreciate you <laughs> uh so uh march 3rd is peach blossom day this is the day to celebrate peach blossoms and for girls to celebrate being girls really Hello. yeah she do that uh, every day love who you are <laughs> uh the attributes of peach blossoms include Pretty, delicate, you know, dainty and sweet and all that. So I guess maybe a cliche thought of a girl. Um, I mean, I guess if you could even spin this to, to like fit, you know, say this is, you know, a feminist or an anti-feminist holiday and that it's making, it's stereotyping girls. I but think you're looking too much into this. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to provoke thought. That's my job. <laughs> all right. So March 4th, uh, another one that I couldn't really find a, uh, I couldn't really find an origin or creator for this, but it's Hug a GI Day. Oh, so that's I, good. I thought, you know, even if I couldn't, even if it wasn't really legit. <laughs> Are they still called GIs? Do they even use that term I don't anymore? No. It's like. Isn't that general general infantry? What is that? Yeah, or government infantry. I don't I don't even know what it stands for. It's know. some um, weird World War II term. I've never even thought about what it means. I've never, I've never questioned it. <laughs> Hug somebody in the military day. Okay. Uh, and uh, March 5th, next Tuesday, 
is going to be a multiple personality day. Oh. So, can you expand on that, DeAndre? Well, someone with the split personality has two personalities. Someone with multiple personalities has more than two. And, I mean, that's... Well- so are these people with multiple personalities celebrating themselves, or because then who they know to celebrate? They have a no, party. It's it's, a, it's an illness. It's like in the yeah, you know the no, it's, DSM. Yeah, it's, it's actually really sad. I know it's a, okay. Let's move on. <laughs> that's Jasmine's I think depressing. it's like an awareness day. <laughs> and that's I mean that's all we got for this week. Yeah. All right. Well. That just about wraps everything we've got for you this week. Uh, big thanks to Gene Zernov, Jasmine Shepard, and Andrew Eichen for their contributions. From all of us here at Eye on the Triangle, we thank you for tuning in. And as always, if you heard anything you liked, hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore dot EOT. Also, be sure to check our blog out at WKNC.org. Let us know if you had any you know crazy opinions about what we talked about tonight. Or if, even if they're not so crazy. Or not so crazy. Until next week. Good night. <laughs>